0: Take your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 9 today if you would. Revelation chapter 9. It's good to have each of you here this morning. We have been in a study for some weeks now in the book of Revelation working our way through. Um, At this point really chapter by chapter we will take additional time where I feel like that's needed and necessary. The Apostle John, guided by an angel, has seen a number of visions in Heaven. The first great vision was the vision of God's relationship through Jesus Christ to the local churches. And we looked at the seven churches of Asia Minor in some detail. John's vision then went to heaven to see God enthroned and the Lord Jesus Christ enthroned with him. And now John is seeing what God will do from heaven towards the earth in a period of time that we call the Great Tribulation. The way that we understand ecclesiology or the study of God's working through history and into the future is that we are now in the church age. The next great chronological event would be what we would call the parousia or the rapture. One day you and I may be in church today and we'll hear Gabriel blow the trumpet and on that great day we will be caught up together in the sky in the clouds with the Lord And there you and I will receive what is called the Bema Seat Judgment. This is not like the Great White Throne Judgment, but this is where you and I are rewarded for the way that we live our lives. For really following the admission of what Brother Daniel was saying earlier in his thought. From that time uh, the calendar of eschatology will move forward into a period called the Great Tribulation. That will be broken up into three and a half year periods of a total of seven years where at the beginning a great ruler possessed by the devil called the Antichrist will rule the world in a one world government. God will begin a series of judgments which we have already talked about in the seal judgments. There were seven. And then comes a series of other judgments called the trumpets and then we'll talk about the bowls. And today we are in the fifth trumpet judgment. We have moved from that first three and a half years to the last three and a half years, the beginning of that period of time where God is moving. From mercy to a greater wrath upon the earth uh, to judge the world and its sin for the wickedness. As we've talked about, the book of Revelation, as we study it, isn't necessarily chronological. It just doesn't really work that way, although many of these events could be, but rather it presents just a layer of events happening. The fact that the Antichrist is ruling near this time is not yet mentioned even in the book of Revelation, but we'll learn that in chapters. To come. So, chapter by chapter is kind of like a layering of additional information and things that are happening. And now we're in the time of what the Bible calls a great woe. This is more than just tribulation, this is the great tribulation. This is the judgment of God poured out upon the earth in a way that the world has never seen. And so with that little bit of backdrop, let me invite you to stand as we read the entirety of chapter 9 together. It is a dramatic chapter. There really is probably no other parallel in Scripture to the things we are about to read. It uh, could have a surreal sound and and feel to it, but this is the Word of God and things that are to come. Revelation chapter 9, verse number 1. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass on the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. Now, we have learned earlier that God did a special work in Israel during this time, and 144,000 Jewish people were saved. There were a great multitude of other people saved, many, if not most, of them martyred during this time. We, we saw them stand before the throne in an earlier chapter So, God here is sending a great plague upon the earth, but He is protecting in a way His own. That does not mean they are not subject to the wrath of the devil and His great uh, army and work here, but but God spares them His judgment in this text. And so, verse 5, And to them was given that they should not kill them, but they should be tormented, five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion, when he striketh the man. And in those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were likened to horses prepared into battle, and on their heads were, were crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of woman of a woman, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was the sound of chariots, many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and there were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men for five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue his name is called Apollyon. One woe was past. And behold, there cometh two woes more hereafter. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, who had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. And the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men." And the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000,000. That's 200 million. And I heard the number of them. Or is he saying, this isn't a, a, a number of hyperbole, this is the number that John heard. And thus I saw the horses in the vision. And then that sat on them having breastplates of fire and jantus and brimstone and the heads of the horses were the heads of lions and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. By these three was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone which issued out of their mouths for their power is in their mouth and in their tails for their tails were likened to serpents in their heads with them that do hurt. Verse 20 and 21 presented to us an unfathomable reality, a curiosity of the tendency of humanity. Verse 20, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands. And they should not worship devils, and idols of gold, and silver, and brass, and stone, and wood, which neither can see, nor hear, nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their fornication, nor of their thefts. Our Holy Father, I pray the next few moments, moments that, Lord, you may help all of us together as we consider and contemplate, Lord, this coming reality, upon our planet. And Lord, I pray we'd move beyond um, fascination and curiosity, Um, Lord, even beyond imagination, to Lord, the sobriety that Lord, you intended in delivering this vision to John to communicate to us. And so I I pray for your help in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. The Bible teaches that mankind lives and exists between two opposing powerful spiritual spheres. These spheres, or powers, are seeking followers, and attempting to conform followers into the image of either kingdom, power, or sphere. As we know, one of these kingdoms or spheres is the power in the domain of truth, of love, of light, and grace. The other domain is the sphere of lies and darkness, of hate and evil. Everyone here today, everyone in this room, everyone in attendance at this moment is currently a citizen of one. Of those two kingdoms. It's not a choice um, that you can choose to exclude yourself from. You are either part of the kingdom of God by choosing to accept the Lord Jesus Christ and His provision of salvation, or by default, because of your sinful nature, you are automatically and axiomatically part of the kingdom of the devil and of the dark one. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 tells us we are either in the kingdom of darkness or we can be translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. Our world in this universe was created by the omnipotent Creator, Jehovah um, God. And this world and our earth, our lives are supposed to be a theater or a place where God's mercy, truth, and grace are displayed for all to see. But shortly after the creation, Satan, who was at that time um, an incredible, glorious archangel, through pride, desired to ascend to the throne of God and to usurp his own maker. He attempted to dethrone God and since uh, that day, of course, he was overthrown. He has made his objective to destroy the work of God and all of those made in God's image. In Isaiah chapter 14, we have this description of Satan's um, parting from God's kingdom. And he says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. This was the divisive moment, not just for Satan in, the, in heaven, but rather for all of humanity and existence. Satan launched his first earthly assault on God's kingdom in the Garden of Eden, where he successfully tempted Adam and Eve to believe a lie, a a truth uh, that was false. And so they sinned against God. And of course, Satan's desire was to pull away what God loved and destroy the work of God. Well, the disastrous consequences were that sin entered the world through Adam and through Eve, and then death which rather God intended to be eternal, now had an infinite lifespan to it, and hell became the destination of all mankind. But God graciously provided a Savior and a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would give His life as an atonement, as a substitute for the penalty of the sin that we deserve. That's what the mercy tree is about. That's what the cross is about, is that on the cross, Jesus Christ bore our penalty. He bore our sin. He took our hell, our punishment. We received through imputation or, or through his person, we received his righteousness. He took on upon himself our hell, and by that atonement of his blood, his sacrifice, we are translated right. by grace through faith into the kingdom of God again. Our citizen then is removed from that dark place into the kingdom of light. Satan, not contented to rest in that defeat, soon retaliated. And he countered God's move by sending an especially egregious group of evil fallen angels, we call them contemporarily demons to cohabitate with earthly women in an attempt to produce a hybrid demon-human race, or rather a people that God could not redeem. Now, this story, as fascinating and as odd as it is, recorded for us in Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 through 4, time does not permit us. You can go read another time, but we see there uh, this perversion of creation happening. Uh, well, this wickedness was responded to by God. And so, God responded by wiping out this abomination of Satan's corruption and the concurrent wickedness of humanity that had fallen to unspeakable depths of depravity before the days of Noah." And so God judged this great sin by what we call Noah's flood. It was a restart, a resetting of humanity and an attempt for grace to start over again. And to keep... This particular egregious abomination from ever happening again, God took those especially egregious beings, those demons, fallen angels, and he chained them in what is called the bottomless pit or the abyss. It's what the Greeks and Romans called Tartarus. Uh, There are different words in in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, for hell. But there is this idea that the lowest hell, the deepest hell, this place called Tartarus, is the place where these demons have been restrained for the past 6,000 years. In the book of 2 Peter chapter 2, there's a warning about false prophets in the world. And, and this text makes reference to this particular chaining of these, of these demons by God. And let me just read this very quickly. First, Second Peter 2 verse 1 says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring destruction upon themselves. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of." And through covetous shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment allowed a long time now lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. So God's saying that a day like today is going to come when there will be false teachers standing in pulpits like this, teaching people things that are not true. And he's saying that they will be judged. And now he says they're going to be judged like, well, another group of, uh, of his creation were judged. Verse 4, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into change of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, and bringing a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So this is a reference to this. And And again, a Jude. In the small chapter, verses 6 and 7, these same angels or demons referred to, And the angels was kept not their first estate, they left their assigned role. They, they moved to a place that defied creation, that was an abomination. They did something that God saw so vile that required a special punishment. And the angels were kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness unto the day of the great judgment, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of them like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example of the suffering of the vengeance of eternal fire. And then in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verse 18 to 20, this is a great text about grace, but it goes on to say that after Christ's death, that Jesus Christ went to this, this place of horrific angels and preached victory unto them. Their plan was thwarted. And that God had won. But since these events that fall, and after the, resurrect, of the resurrection, Satan and his army have continued to wage war upon humanity and God's creation. The Old Testament provides many examples of Satanic warfare in Daniel chapter 10, God was communicating a special message of the revelation of future days. And and Satan and his dominions fought against this. And for 21 days, Michael fought against these demonic powers so the message could be delivered unto Daniel. Uh, Satan contended with Michael over the body of Moses. And that's for a future historic event which we'll discuss in time. Satan tempted David to number his army and in many other ways. Uh, there's many examples in the Old Testament of the way that Satan was fighting God's attempt to bring about even a king. Um, there's, there's a great story about how that, the, the devil attempted that, and yet God overcame it, of course, in Mary and Joseph. But in Jesus' day, we know that demonic activity was rampant, and Jesus cast out many demons from people. And when Jesus cast them out, at times, they would plead with him not to cast them into the abyss or into the pit. And they would rather go to a herd of swine that would be hurled in the sea than to go to the place of reserved chains and darkness that their uh, fellow demons, some were chained to. You see an example of this in Luke chapter eight, verse thirty-one. Today, in First Peter chapter five, verse eight. We know that satanic forces are still trying to steer humanity away from God. That's why the Bible says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, the same imagery used in Revelation 9, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities against powers, against rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And the book of Revelation in chapter 9 presents to us some of these divisions, these hierarchies of spiritual powers that have always plagued humanity and will so in an incredibly perverse and unique way in the tribulation. All that introduction brings us to our text so we understand what's happening here and where these angels, these fallen angels and demons are coming from. These angels under the sovereignty of God in the last half the Great Tribulation um, are part of God's judgment. One of God's attending angels in our text blows the fifth trumpet of God, this fifth trumpet of judgment. The greatest woe, the most severe judgment that mankind has ever seen in human history. This judgment follows the seven sealed judgments and the four, tru- the four trumpet judgments that have already come. The four great trumpets that have sounded brought the world into undescribable terror from the sky. Uh, signs of the heaven, the moon, the sun were darkened. Wormwood fell from heaven, a, a great star that spoiled the, the natural waters, the fresh waters. One fell into the sea, volcanic activity, the corruption, the death of marine life and human life alike. It was an incredible four trumpets from above. And now we see the fifth and sixth trumpet, the great evil, rises from below. It rises from the pits of hell, the place of the universal greatest evil. For the first three and a half years of tribulation, Satan has possessed the Antichrist, who became, as I mentioned, the one world ruler, and the inhabitants of the earth, for the most part, rallied around this fascinating political, cultural figure, and at time even worshipped him. During this same time, God began to send these sealed judgments that we've already discussed, these warnings uh, that not only was this wrong, but God's impending greater judgment was coming, which is now exploding upon the scene in chapter 9. This greater judgment falls upon the world as Satan, uh, the Antichrist, literally goes to the, the temple that will exist in that day and declares himself God, defiling himself the world And trying to overthrow God's purposes. This is a time when God's mercy is nearly over. So, four trumpets have sounded that have brought unimaginable ecological destruction to the planet. One fourth of the population has already died. That number will soon reach one third in this short span of time over two billion people will perish. In our text, chapter 9, verse 1, the fifth trumpet is blown. And that is blown, a supernatural being falls from heaven. He is in possession of a key that evidently the Lord Jesus Christ has given him, and it is the key to the bottomless pit, Tartarus, this lowest hell. His identity is not stated for us. It could be another heavenly angel doing the, the bidding of God. Conversely, there are some people who think that this may be the devil himself. We know this, the devil is the prince of the power of the air. He, he can present himself with the throne of God as he did so before Job. Perhaps God gave him this key for this moment. Uh, his identity, I don't know. I don't. I don't know that it matters greatly. I know this. Either way, what he does is under the direction and sovereignty of God. This supernatural being opens the gate of Tartarus. He opens the pit of hell, and as he does, smoke arises so thick that as it ascends to the skies, that the smoke darkens the sun and the moon an ominous sign of impending doom and judgment that is about to erupt upon the earth. Following after the smoke in verse 3, the unimaginable happens. The Bible describes creatures resembling, in the mind of John, locusts that are loosed upon the earth. It is an invasion of Numbers beyond imagination. Before I move on, let me stop and add a caveat. Apocalyptic literature uses a large amount of symbolism, and there's some wisdom in understanding what is meant to be taken literally and what is symbolic. Uh, much of this is is no doubt literal, but it's literal. In the mind of the Apostle John, in other words, he he uses the word "like." I think in this text uh, six or seven times, like it's something he's never seen before. So he said, "Well, uh, all I have to say it's like this, and it's like that, and it's like something else." Um, his purpose, though, and I, I said this many times, John's purpose in writing the Apocalypse—it's not to give you and I a, a timeline so we can mark on our calendars. The foolishness of man over the centuries is, is, is mystifying that people try to predict what Jesus said no one can predict. So, forget a timeline. This is just going to happen. Is that good enough? And neither is he trying to point, to just like paint a picture where we could go home and draw out what these creatures look like. That is not a, probably a wise activity to engage in nor healthy to do on the internet. Just leave that alone. What he's doing is he is using imagery understood by his contemporary audience to instill awe, terror, and action. A lot of the imagery is likened unto war. Now we see in Joel chapter 1 and 2 similar imagery where a great army descending uh, upon Israel comes like locusts. And so there is similar imagery in the Old Testament. But here's the idea the idea of the locust is not to describe some creature that you and I try to figure out what he looks like, but rather the description here is to describe magnitude, the number of these beings presenting themselves upon the earth. In other words, when you see locusts descending as a cloud, they can darken the sky. And this is what John's trying to communicate in this description. What he sees issuing out of the earth is beyond counting. And it's also to describe their destructive capability and forces. Locusts could destroy a country. And so what is issuing from the abyss is great in number and unimaginably destructive. The appearance is of secondary importance, if at all. So in my opinion, the locusts here represent not a human military army, and some people look at this as a way of describing the War of Armageddon. I think that's an entirely different description. My opinion, this represents a literal demonic force let loose upon the earth. How Lindsay and those guys can differ, I'm just reading it for what it says. I believe this is a real demonic army, truly ascending out of the pit, having been reserved and changed there for the past 6,000 years to do what they've always wanted to do and destroy humanity. And, and if it matters to you, I have some reasons for believing that specifically. Number one, a physical war is indiscriminate. You can't throw bombs and tanks and not kill trees and grass and whatever, right? You can't tell a tree, a tank, and a, a, a gun not to hit someone who has a mark of God in their forehead. But you can tell a demon not to do that. Smoke comes after a war, not before a war. And I could go on and on and on. But it's there in the text, if you want to see it. But they're told, and they're given restrictions, not to add to the ecological disaster that's already fallen upon the earth. Um, God said that was enough at the moment. But rather, these locusts, this demonic army, is given permission to torment. And that word is very specific in the text. It's the same word that we read about as a descriptor of hell. They're given permission to torment humanity as Satan did Job for five months. Now, there's some people wonder why five months. That's typically the lifespan of a locust. Um, It also just fits in the framework of the revelation of seven years. But this five months is a time of torment. This is, uh, forgive me, it's, it's, it's hell on this earth. It's, it's, it's not just like hell in the torment. It's like hell in that there's this evidently supernatural withdrawing of people's ability to even die. They're going to wish to die, and they can't. It's, it's hell on earth. They're further restricted not to harm those who have the mark of God upon them. That would be the 144,000 and those who might be saved in the moment. Yes, part of the terror I can't imagine, what was their appearance. They had the shape of a locust, okay, think segmented body, thorax, legs. They were large like horses, protected to be with what John perceived as an armor. They had false crowns, they were light crowns. Their faces had the contorted appearance of a man, they had the, the hair, the long hair of a woman. They had teeth like a lion, wings like the locust, which provided them great mobility. It said a number of times they had tails like scorpions. That's very specific because for the most part when a, a scorpion stings you, you don't die, but it's, it's a kind of torment that's slow to go away. And that's the idea being conveyed to, to a group of people who lived in the presence of scorpions. Tails like scorpions that could sting and inflict unbearable, unimaginable, supernatural pain. So the bite in their teeth, the sting in their tails like a scorpion and a snake, and they plagued humanity. No one dying, just plaguing for five months. Just maybe a period of, of grace for those who would, unlikely, might repent. But they were organized. Unlike locusts in the Old Testament, the locusts that we would have, you know, grasshoppers, these were ranked in a hierarchy. They had a king. In the Hebrew, his name is Abaddon in the Greek. It is Apollyon, um, specifically identified as someone other than separate than Satan himself. He doesn't, he's not, Satan rules in the skies, this ruled in the pit below. The word Abaddon and Apollyon mean the same. It means prince of destruction. And that was their purpose, his aim, to torment and destroy the earth. This is one of the rulers described for us in Ephesians chapter 6, the principalities and the rulers of evil. So evil that had been locked away from humanity for 6,000 years was let loose in the fifth trumpet. So this ends the fifth trumpet, the first woe, Torment minus death, and horror and pain minus relief. And we're getting started. So, the sixth angel sounds his trumpet, and the reprieve of death is over. As bad as the locust army is, a worse set of demons are set loose upon the earth. There are four angels who were bound specifically in an ancient river, Euphrates, which flowed from the Garden of Eden long ago. This is the place where there was the first sin. This is the place where close to the Tower of Babel was built. This is the place where the first murder occurred. It was in this area where sin originated that these four demons, yet to be described in the book of Revelation, are bound in that ancient river, kept there under supernatural lock and key for this moment of judgment that befalls the earth. Their purpose was let loose simply to do this to slay a third of mankind the thing they have always desired to do but have been kept from and these four generals demonic hierarchy of angels gathered the demonic hordes of the earth the sky and from those underneath and the bible describes an army of 200 million hyperbole i don't know it means a number beyond description and john saw the, saw them he he heard them and they were armed with breastplates upon the rider and the horse the horses heads were like lions they, they, they had a disposition to kill. The demonic um, ability they had to breathe fire, brimstone, and smoke is what slayed humanity. Like the locust horde, they had power in their teeth and their tails. All this imagery is amazing and fascinating to us, but to the ancient audience that John spoke to, All this was references to demonic. They believed that scorpions had demonic power, and they especially believed in in, in serpents being demonic. If you even go back in the Garden of Eden, how did Satan present himself? But as a serpent. Smoke and brimstone, In the ancient mind spoke of hell. Battle horses were terrifying to these people. And so, all of this was meant to, to portray a disposition of death and intent. In all this description, I have no scriptural reason to believe that this is anything less than a satanic, supernatural, demonic army being turned, and this is the crux of my sermon, (sighs) turning on the humanity that has worshipped them. Idolatry has existed for millennia. And there's would be a great resurrection of the same kind of idolatry in the tribulation as they worship in sorcery they worship the Antichrist. And so, these people, humanity for, for six centuries to 7,000 years have worshipped whether they knowingly or not these demons that have influenced what they worship. In some cases you know, possessing the very things they do and now what they have falsely worshipped is turning on them. That's what sin always does. Amen. This is the monster. This is the master turning on the servant. Those who have appeared as angels of lights, who've, who've allured and tempted, now they're seen for what they really are. And it's horrific. Sin today tempts us, it beckons us to serve it, and then it destroys us. It's crazy and unbelievable because the delusion of the time and the hardness of the human heart that the majority of humanity that's still left alive will not repent. I don't, I don't know, maybe at this time it's not even possible to repent the delusion has grown so great. But there's some phrases here that absolutely captured my attention. They repented not of the work of their hands. I don't know if I'm almost or not. Just hang with me. They would not repent of their priorities. They would not repent of what they had given their life to. Even here these people refused to change what had been important to them. 2021, they wouldn't repent of their evil ways, of the sorceries, of their murders, of their thievery. This is going to be an echo of last week's application, but it seems to be a central point and idea in the text. Now, please listen. That humanity in its fallenness tends to give itself to that which robs, steals, and destroys it. Stop. You and I, unguided by the scripture, will give ourselves to that behavior, though maybe pleasant in the moment and alluring and tempting, if yielded to, will destroy us. It is the repeated failure of humanity. Romans chapter 6. You become servants to whom you obey. Well, who are we obeying? This is what we're seeing there in chapter 9 the spiritual forces of darkness. The Bible says the rest who were not killed by these plagues, okay, stop. Just think. Where are the plagues coming from? Well, they're coming from God. Okay, but in response to what? To the very behavior that's brought the plagues upon you. words, they won't repent of the consequences of their actions. Okay, you and I, we we just go, unbelievable. Really? The Proverbs articulates this in a graphic way. As a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. 2 Peter 2.22 A sow that was washed returns to wallowing in the mire. How many weeks have you come to church, giving yourself to the same destructive habits and tendencies, behaviors and attitudes that you know you should repent of, but have not yet? And even faced and suffered some of the consequences of that behavior, attitudes and actions, and still won't fix it. So before this becomes too unimaginable, unbelievable for us, There's a smaller type and picture of it right here in the auditorium of Eastland Baptist Church. We see this both clearly in addictive behavior, do we not? I'm numb, I'm empty. I'll solace myself with drink. I drink, I feel numb. Then I sober up and I'm right back where I am. And to relieve the pain, I indulge the same vomit the same behavior all again, to numb the pain, which leads me right back to the vomit all over again and over and over and over. I give myself to sim, the sin, the sin to, to make myself good. It passes, I feel bad. So the, re- the only recourse I have is to give myself to the sin again, and it's a spiraling circle downward. See, this is the universal law of sowing and reaping. We do good, we do good, we get good. We do evil, poor, wrong. We get the same and the consequences of the evil. These people are seeing the consequences rain down upon them. And evil demons turning on them. And they won't stop. Unbelievable, we say. And when is the last time you came to the altar? we destroy ourselves and our behavior. We do this in our finances. We do this in our relationship. We engage in the same behavior over and over. We do this spiritually. We live in sin, negative habit, persistent problem, and we wonder why we can't get on top. Why my life's not better. Why my marriage is ruined. The Bible calls this behavior delusional. In James chapter 1, the Bible says, if you hear the truth and you hear the truth, I am so glad you're here today if you come here every week and sit in that seat and never move, that's a dangerous place to be in. Because you're like an onion, you're just going to layer, layer over layer over layer of the seat. I'm okay, I'm okay, okay. Look here, let me. You are not okay. When we hear the truth and do something with the truth, we break the delusion, we break the lie, we break the power of Satan in our life. Otherwise, we become blind, and we may even become beyond reaching. This is the lost world of the tribulation. They are deceived, they are deluded, they are unable to see and understand that they are receiving the consequences, the rewards of their sinful behavior, and they still will not repent or change. That's the lost world today. Sin is an obvious, self-evident truth, is it not? Who here can't see the sin in your own life? And yet we think we can remedy it by trying to be good. Well, good luck with that. We don't need um, reformation. We need transformation. We need to be moved from the citizenship of this world to the citizenship of light, which only can go through the conduit of the blood of Christ. It's outside of ourselves that we find our hope. And yet men, and stubbornness, In refusal to believe in God, reject what is so obvious and self-evident. So we go back to war over and over again. We go back to to bad finances. We we go back to murder. We go back to adultery. We go back to lust. We go back to all these behaviors. Like, why can't we learn? Why, Why do we give ourselves to the work of our hands, to our work, in greater priority than the work of God? We allow our work and hobbies and money and wrong priorities, sinful habits, to direct and control us. And we look at mystery at people in Revelation 9 like, why can't they know better? Today, God is long-suffering. He's patient. His goodness should lead us to repentance. But in the text, the mercy seat before the throne became the judgment seat. There's a time, Genesis 6, where God says, My spirit will not always strive with man. The longer we wait, the harder it becomes to change. These people have already gone through three and a half years of opportunity to change, many of them. Three and a half years. The, the sun was darkened, the moon, a volcano or mountain fell into the, in the ocean, the sea is wormwood, the, the, I'm sorry, the rivers, wormwood. Like, what's it going to take? What's it going to take? Sometimes we have an incalculable, unreasonable ability to engage in that which is harmful. Even after we feel the sting, literally, in Revelation 9, of the consequences. It's not like we don't know. It's just we're a like-minded kind of stubborn. So I wanna ask the question that I asked last week. What's it gonna take for you to change? To be saved, maybe some of you. And for those who are saved, to like, I've, I've done this long enough. I have to give this area of my life to God. I am stopped living in the delusion, in the lie. I, If judgment's coming for what I'm doing, then how about this? I'm gonna stop what I'm doing and ask God for grace to live and to do and be something different. In the end, as fascinating as the book of Revelation is in our ears and minds, it was written to change us, to inspire and move us to more holy lives. So God help us do that. Let me ask you to stand.